Hello and thank you for joining us for this edition of Stratford Talks, our monthly podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs. I'm Ben Sheen. And I'm Serena Reiser. And we're your hosts for the show. Today we'll be talking with Stratford's Roger Baker, Vice President of Strategic Analysis, about the recent ruling from The Hague concerning China's claims in the South China Sea. So Roger, yesterday the UN Permanent Court of Arbitration gave its long-awaited decision on the South China Sea. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? So when we look at this ruling, I know a lot of ways the ruling has been shaped is a potential way to resolve the disputes in the South China Sea, who owns what, or at least resolve the dispute between the Philippines and China. But in reality, the PCA had a very limited uh, jurisdiction in what it could rule on. And it couldn't officially rule on issues of sovereignty. So what it did is it ruled on whether or not the pieces of territory in the South China Sea currently occupied by China are officially islands, rocks, or low tide elevations, which has different meaning under uh, the rules set out by the UNCLOS for defining what type of territory they give. And effectively, what they declared is that all of these are low tide elevations. And that meant that they do not provide the occupier with a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. Because these are so close to the Philippines and far from China, by removing China's right to claim an EEZ from these, it effectively allowed the Philippines EEZ from their shoreline to claim most of the waters, but not necessarily the features. And then by EEZ, you mean an exclusive economic zone, right? Yes. Okay. So do you think this ruling was expected by Beijing? Did they see this coming? Certainly, Beijing has known for a while that the ruling was going to go this way. And and initially, the Chinese chose not to participate in the trial um, and not to take part in it. They did send a memorial to the court, but they didn't uh, take an active role because they refuse the arbitration process. They've declared that they don't need to follow the arbitration process or be a part of it. But now, of course, the result has come out. They've really spent the past month or two ramping up uh, their messaging Uh, trying to gather as many countries in the world to claim that this ruling has no bearing. And also, though, interestingly, trying to consult other countries to get ideas of what are the limits of China's actions following the ruling that will not incur direct responses from, in particular, the United States. Now, it seems to me that China finds itself in a little bit of a pickle because they actually they signed up to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. So technically, they have to abide by that. But we know they're probably not going to. So do you think they will set uh, an interesting precedent here in what they do next? Well, on the one hand, they have already chosen to selectively enforce or selectively interpret the UNCLOS. So the Chinese and the United States already have a differing interpretation in UNCLOS as pertains to freedom of navigation, particularly for military vessels. The Chinese argue that uh, any activity by a military vessel that may include, for example, surveillance, monitoring signals, things of that sort, is considered hostile and therefore not allowed within the EEZ. The United States argues differently and says this is perfectly acceptable within the EEZ. So selective enforcement and selective interpretation is already there. Second, the Chinese argue that the court has exceeded its jurisdiction and therefore the output should not be recognized. So they've got the the space to maneuver to not necessarily throw away the entire UNCLOS, 
while still arguing that they were allowed to opt out of this and that this is an invalid ruling because it exceeds its mandate. And then the final piece that the Chinese really do like to still hold on to is to emphasize that while China has both signed and ratified the UNCLOS, the United States has not. And therefore, it's very hard from the Chinese perspective for the United States to justify demanding that China maintain uh, the ruling and abide by the ruling when the United States, as the Chinese would say, is hypocritical and refuses to ratify the convention. So for other players of the region in the South China Sea, what, what does the decision mean for the Philippines, for instance, or for Taiwan? So for the Philippines, obviously, this is considered a victory. Um, even if it doesn't necessarily move the Chinese off of the, uh, well, not islands anymore, but but elevations, the, the, the features in the South China Sea, it doesn't remove the Chinese from those. But it does give the Philippines, at least by this court ruling, legal justification for fishing into in the territory around these these islets, around these these uh, features. Um for it, it may also help with Manila in having more direct negotiations with China because Manila may now feel that they have a stronger position to enter into bilateral discussions with Beijing in regards to, say, joint fishing uh, of the territory, maybe joint exploration for subsea resources. The, we saw Taiwan already respond in a very negative way uh, because Taiwan claims all of this same area that China claims. And for Taiwan, this automatically says, well, you can't make that claim. And that's very difficult for them. Also, Taiwan currently occupies one of the largest islands in the South China Sea. And the court ruled that that's not an island. And so for Taiwan, this is very difficult. On the one hand, the Taiwanese don't want to uh, be going against the United States and the Philippines in the sense that the U.S. is backing the Philippines overall in this issue. On the other hand, uh, th this really reduces what Taiwan can potentially claim uh, as their territory. Vietnam is perhaps in the most difficult position right now, uh, aside from China, obviously, uh, in that Vietnam also claims these islands, but Vietnam opposes the concept of the nine-dash line. So on the one hand, they've welcomed the ruling, and they've said this is a good thing because effectively it's removed China's uh, legitimacy of the nine-dash line claim. On the other hand, it's a bad ruling because it removes some of Vietnam's claims on territory and territorial waters. So Roger, what do you think we're actually going to see next on the open seas? China has specific holdings on some of these rocks. It's, it's spent a significant amount of money developing infrastructure there, which it's not going to give up overnight. Plus, with this ruling, are we likely to see clashes on the high seas as different countries position their navies in the same waters, which could inevitably lead to some form of confrontation? So China is certainly not going to leave these artificial islands that they've built up. As a matter of fact, the Chinese just a few days ago uh, inaugurated another new lighthouse on one of these uh, these artificial islands as a way of emphasizing their role for assisting in regional navigation and being a, a, an element of regional safety rather than an element of Chinese hegemony. Um, the Chinese may expand some of their military activity in the space, move more ships into the area. Uh, Taiwan has already started uh, expanding its patrols and has suggested that it may replace the Coast Guard with Marines on their island. So some of the concepts of militarization that, that have been argued against in this space may actually accelerate because of this ruling. Uh, the Philippines is being called upon by their fishing fleets to provide security escorts 
to encourage those fishing fleets to go back out, but also to bring more military vessels in there. The United States is likely to run more freedom of navigation uh, operations to demonstrate that it abides by this ruling. In other words, if these used to be considered by China islands and now they're not islands, then the United States is going to sail right up to the 12 nautical mile zone rather than stay further away from them. Uh, If they're not even considered rocks and if they've now just been considered uh, low tide elevations, then the U.S. will sail less than 12 nautical miles from them to emphasize that. So that does raise the tensions, but perhaps more so than the question of the navies, which in some ways have a certain restraint on them by their national governments, is going to be the complexity of what the various fishing fleets do in these waters and whether that starts to trigger uh, not only potential confrontations amongst the fishing fleets of different countries, but also draws in their various maritime security forces. And already fishing has been sort of a contentious industry in the South China Sea, is right? Fishing fleets have already sort of had these little run-ins. So can we probably expect to see more of that? Yes, fishing has really been in some ways overlooked. A lot of discussions in the South China Sea initially centered around uh, subsea resources, energy resources, things of that sort, which really have a much slower development cycle. Uh, Others have focused on Uh, sovereignty issues, national security issues, territorial issues. Is China moving out and expanding? Is the United States overly dominating a region and things of that sort? But a a daily reality in the region is fishing and other seafoods. And this has become much more important in the area. One, it's a major source of protein throughout the area and micronutrients. Two, it's a huge component of exports for a lot of these countries, a major employer in some of these countries. And because most of the countries around the periphery of this sea have really started to deplete their nearshore stocks, they're all moving further out into this disputed territory. And so all of the fishing fleets, which used to be close to their own shores and not really running into each other as much, are now all moving into the same spot and trying to fish the same waters to maintain not only the amount of fishing that they're trying to do now, But many of their governments have set increased quotas and increased expectations for what they're going to do. And in the case of China, the government has actually also started to develop, or not it started, but expanded uh, armed militia that go along with these fishing fleets to give them their own indigenous security and safety. So I guess a question that I have is, what does this mean for international law? Because it seems like China has agreed to sign up for UN CLOS, but then when it doesn't suit it, it just allows it to fall by the wayside. And certainly there's an issue of scale here. Had this happened to a much smaller country with a smaller population, a smaller navy, they might have had little choice but to abide by the ruling. But China is big. It's growing at its navy. It has a big population. It holds a lot of sway in the region. Does that simply give it the right just to ignore international law? Well, the Chinese will point to the United States doing similar things in other rulings, where the United States may not accede to certain court rulings, or it may choose not to fully ratify even certain aspects of international law, UNCLOS being one of the the key ones on that sense. Um, The Chinese argue that they uh, legitimately opted out of certain clauses of UNCLOS, and therefore they shouldn't be bound by them because that was within the process they were allowed to opt out of them. They also argue, again, that because, by their estimate, this case is not legitimate, they shouldn't be bound by it. So they're creating what they would shape as a legal case justifying noncompliance in this case 
and not showing that as simply rejection of international law or rules-based. One of the biggest challenges of international law, of course, is enforcement. There really is no international enforcement. United Nations peacekeeping forces are not out there to enforce international law, um, particularly international maritime law. It really is about whether or not countries simply agree to abide by it and abide by these types of rulings. And that's what these courts are set up to do, is to create this arbitration that the countries are supposed to agree to say whatever the outcome is, we're going to follow it. In some cases, we've seen countries do that, particularly when you have two countries that are of similar size, um, similar strength. They seem to be more likely to abide by this type of arbitration than what we're seeing here. So how is the situation going to be managed going forward? So one of the things is, of course, there's no resolution here. Um, this did not resolve anything. And in, in some ways, it may have even opened more questions in regards to the South China Sea control, uh, territoriality, things of that sort. Um, as we watch each of the countries, at least the two key players, China and the Philippines, the Philippines has come out and, and said, this is a great thing, but we really need to be restrained right now. We don't need to go and poke our finger in the Chinese eye. We don't need to instigate China and cause some sort of friction. So the Philippines has decided it's going to try to hold back uh, and, and quite frankly, in, in negotiate in dialogue with the United States, the United States has strongly argued the Philippines to, to ease off and hold back and not poke at the Chinese too hard right now either. Well, the United States will make a clear demonstration that it finds this to be a, a binding ruling. China, interestingly, has also, despite the very loud rhetoric and, and the, the newspaper editorials and the cartoons showing the Philippines as a puppet on U.S. strings and things of that sort, uh, the Chinese are being fairly restrained physically as well. So, yes, they've threatened to establish a, an ADIS over the area, the Air Defense Identification Zone, which we saw them do in the East China Sea, which they don't really enforce, despite the fact that they declare it. Um, but the Chinese... Uh, put barriers and security around the Philippine embassy in, in uh, Beijing to protect it from potential protesters or things of that sort. The Chinese censors have gone through and some of the most uh, extreme nationalist rhetoric in the Chinese uh, uh, cyberspace has been cleared off. So they're not necessarily censoring people who are supporting the Philippines. They're censoring people who are over the top in supporting China, calling for a war or, or things of that sort. So with the preparation work China did, I think that what we're seeing in the management is that there's a political management externally. There's a need to appeal to domestic sentiment and to play that up. But there's also a recognition that they can't allow things to go too far, uh, as was the case, for example, with China and Japan a few years back, where it led to physical riots in the streets, smashing Japanese cars, burning Japanese businesses. And really, I don't think that China is going to accept that happening at home. Well, this is clearly something that's going to bear close attention now and, and going forward. And we actually have a very large body of work on this subject on stratfor.com. So definitely if it's something you're interested in, I very much encourage you to, to check out stratfor.com and more on this subject. Roger, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and explain this today. Thank you. You may or may not know, but there's a bit more to us than just Stratfor.com. With me now to talk about some other aspects of strategic forecasting is Karina Garcia, our business operations manager. So Karina, can you tell us a little bit about what's on offer? Thank you, Ben. Stratfor partners with clients to help identify opportunities, make strategic decisions, and manage risk. 
Services that we provide include an enterprise membership, which offers access to Stratfor's foundational website portal, along with additional business-focused content for enterprise users. In addition, we offer custom intelligence services on either a project or retainer basis. This may include risk assessments, global intelligence monitoring, strategic planning support, and protective intelligence, among others. Our analyst team also provides keynote speeches for industry events and corporate gatherings and trainings for organizations looking to understand and take away best practices from our analytical and forecasting methodology. Meanwhile, please keep an eye out for more information about ThreatLens, a soon-to-be-launched premium protective intelligence product geared towards corporate security leaders. For more information, please contact us at business at stratfor.com or visit stratfor.com backslash enterprise. Karina, thank you for giving the outline for us. Be sure to reach out to Karina at the address provided if you have any further questions or inquiries. 